Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Batsarai has been living with HIV for 13 years. Her story begins in Southern Africa. As a teenager in the late 1990s, Batsarai recalls a scary time growing up in Namibia, Zambia and Zimbabwe. People were getting sick and dying from AIDS. Safe sex messages were everywhere, so when she finished high school and went to university, everyone either used condoms or abstained from sex. Then her parents moved the family to Australia but there were no billboards, no TV adverts, no news of HIV, and she assumed it was safe here. Welcome back, Sarai. Hi, everyone. Now, it sounds like you had a very exciting life traveling around those countries in Southern Africa. Why were your family living in so many countries? Well, I think part of it is because my parents, they're both Africans, but they come from two different countries. So in Africa, Africa is a big continent with so many countries and different cultures, different languages. So I think my parents wanted me to embrace both cultures. So they were both Africans, but very different. I was born in Zimbabwe, but I was raised in Namibia. Then my mother's family, in terms of her sisters, they had found partners who were Zambians, which is another country. So to be part of different cultures in that family, we just used to move around on school holidays. So, yeah, so that was quite important part of who I am. I've acquired three different languages. It's always stuck with me. So, yeah, it was pretty amazing time when I think back. What was it like as a teenager in Africa at this time when there were so many messages about HIV on the billboards and in in the news? Now, what did you and your friends talk about around HIV? You know, how scary was it? What was it like? It was very scary because even in sex ed classes in high school, they always told us even HIV was being discussed and we were told because I went to, Catholic, to a Catholic school in high school so obviously the Catholic schools and church they already have their own values around sex so you even they were even reinforcing the abstinence because of HIV and then they called it AIDS the artists back in Africa all they were singing about was AIDS HIV they called it AIDS because people were dying so there were messages in songs messages at school messages even with your parents, because you had aunts and uncles who were dying. I I think I had like three close relatives from my mom and dad who died because of an AIDS-related illness. So it was very close to home. It was just very real. Yeah. So no one wanted to get it. So in high school, people were afraid. We never engaged in sex at all. Yeah. Or at least, yeah, we, we were scared. We wanted to, but we were scared. Yeah, I mean, it's so different yeah. than what it is here in Australia where you would be very hard-pressed to find any anyone who has been impacted by HIV by having a family member die from, from AIDS. Mm. And back then, HIV was very much a death sentence. It was before effective HIV medications were discovered, which was in 1996. So... You had this sex health education at school. How did your parents talk to you about 
have that sort of sex education talk with you as a teenager? Well, my parents, well, they also reinforced the message of abstinence because I think now it was now driven by HIV just to say, don't do it because of that. Whereas initially back in, you know, years before it had become a big thing, they were you were taught to abstain so you wouldn't get pregnant because those messages are still even here, right? And access to contraception is not that, it wasn't that easy you know, in, in Africa. So you were told to abstain because of that. So now the message now with parents will just tell you, don't do it. And that's where it ends. Your sexuality wasn't talked about. So it was just driven by the HIV, the AIDS message. Don't do it. Otherwise you will die like what you, your aunt did or, you know, you get your prize for it, you know. So there were all these stigma kind of related messages mm. as well attached to it. So I remember when an aunt of mine was unwell and she yeah. came to stay with us, they had to hide her so people wouldn't see that she had an AIDS-related illness. And this was my dad's sister. So, yeah, just pretty real. Yeah, terrible times. And mm-hmm. you're, how old were you when you moved to Australia with your family? Uh, I would say probably twi- 19 going 20. What did you think of life here? Like after what was going on, this scary situation in, in Africa, what was it like here in Australia for you as a young woman? Well, it was a safe heaven, you know. It was. I felt like, oh, I could just be me, you know. I could just be free. You, all, I almost felt like once we got on that plane, over the big ocean and get here we're like we're separate we're away from all of that and almost felt free mm. freedom of being who I am and I think my my parents stayed in the rural part of Australia and I went to a big city right because I was going to go finish my uni so I had all this independence now you know I'm in Australia I can be myself yeah. find out who I am sexually sexuality and all of that so it was actually a relief being away from those messages it didn't exist anymore being here and we're done the test because when you come here you do your test so you're coming as a family and you're going to apply for residence you do your test for HIV um yeah so that was negative they were like oh well what else could go wrong we are untouchable we're free Mm. that's how I felt and the other thing is compared to Africa we rarely see any safe sex messages anywhere no. so what did you think about this compared to what was going on in in Africa did you just think well HIV is not here it's not an issue here yeah that's what I thought because I thought it's not here and also growing up there was all these myths about HIV came from Africa anyway do you know what I mean yeah. when they talk about where the, mono, the largest population of people that have HIV are in Africa so you grow up with those notions and then now you're in a western country it's not talked about you don't see billboards I actually thought it was non-existent to be honest yeah I just thought we were safe and all the people that were here that were from Africa I thought they were all negative because they had gone through the test And at university where you've got a lot of young people and they're sort of exploring their sexuality and there was any safe sex messages? None. If at all, there were all these research to test reproductive health was to, I think it was this device coming up for contraception called Implanon. I remember someone coming to me now thinking about it. It was like, it's very ironic. Yeah, that's the only time. That's it. That's the only thing I saw. Yeah, and that's nothing to do with sexual health. 
But if you think about it, it's like now I'm saying, oh, they're even telling us to have <laughs> the thing we should be worrying about is actually having babies. So that was in my mind. Yeah. And when you fell in love at university, how different was this to starting a relationship in Africa? Say if you'd fallen in love in Africa, what would have happened differently to what happened here? In Africa, we met someone. The first discussions we'll be having is about going to get a test with a guy. Or if you're going to have, either you abstain with this guy or you use condoms. Condoms with the norm. And if you're going to not use them, you start having talks about having tests. So the testing culture was very real. You'd talk about that. Even family members would be like, I hope a person has been tested. And if they suspect, because in an African community, everybody knows everyone and everybody is into everyone's business. So if they know this guy is someone else's else's kid, we went out there, someone who they think was suspicious, they'll even be telling you, like, I hope your daughter is getting tested before they do anything with that man. Before you get married, you'd be tested if they wanted to make sure. So, you, yeah, so there was a lot of that. And there's pre- and post-test counselling. You'd go with your boyfriend, get have that counselling session about why you're getting tested. It was very, very real. So when I came here, it was less relieved to not have that burden to talk to someone about that. You just be spontaneous, right? So yeah, it was very different, very easy. You didn't have to have the hard talks. I got diagnosed in 2007 where I met this guy through uni and then I got diagnosed with sort of like there for each other. We supported each other, uh, make sure he was okay. I didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell anyone. And I think he's probably still struggling with it even 13 years down the line. Often people are diagnosed for different reasons. They may have a seroconversion illness, which is after they've first been infected and the virus is at that stage where it's attaching to cells and bodies making antibodies. So there's like this, this fight going on within the body and often that comes down as people have flu-like symptoms and, and various illnesses and rashes and so yeah. forth. Other people don't get any of those symptoms. And some people like myself, I had a test because I needed to get a visa for travel. So what was your situation for finding out? So with me, like I always say, I was actually almost growing up in Africa. I f- sometimes I feel like it was a blessing in disguise because I was dating this guy and um, he was always a bit sick in very suspicious ways you would get antibiotics for all different things and wouldn't really get better and then um he was losing weight and then there was an incident within um an STI incidents with us, between us. And then, yeah, we went to a sexual health center. And the funny thing there, they didn't reinforce the whole HIV thing. He got treated, I got treated. But then it started making me think, like my brain took me back to Africa. I was like, wait a minute, go back to where where you grew up, what was happening as a young child. If we're there, what would you have done? That's when I I went back in retrospect. I was like, I just felt like something was a something wasn't and because we had that STI incident I was like but we were actually breaking up then I was like we need to get tested I went and got tested actually without him by myself yeah because I was I had my suspicions and then yeah it was positive and that was that had been the positive test after two negative tests and I hadn't been with anyone else this was it was very. It was a shock, and then I told him, and then he was shocked. You know, I'm Australian. Where is this coming from? And yeah, it was really a lot of back and forth. I was like, we can go back and get tested together. 
And I went back again with him and they found that his was way advanced and they suspected that his was at least 10 to 15 years old, his diagnosis. And they could tell that mine was quite recent because of the damage to the immune system. Yeah. When we still talk now, he's always like, oh, you saved my life. Because I think I would have just broken up with him, went on with my life with my HIV, stuck with it with a culture here, maybe pass it on to several guys. But I just thought back what I do back in Africa. So, yeah. You had the sexual health checkup, but HIV wasn't included in that. It's like an opt-in rather than an opt-out. And uh, this is one of the things that that I know with Positive Women Victoria and also the other HIV sector organisations, they're wanting that sexual health checkup to actually include HIV. And like you're saying, it was so lucky for you that you sort of thought back to what was got, had happened in Africa and you'd seen these kind of illnesses before and it just rang an alarm bell for you. But for m- many other people, they w- it wouldn't have even crossed their mind. But for me, I think it's, it's that historical background I had because initially when they were like, oh, do you want to have an HIV opt out? I opt out. I actually opt out. But then I went back and then I thought about it. I was like, no, I have to go. And because we were breaking up and I, I said I was going to be in another relationship and I wanted to have a clean slate because that's what people do in Africa. So I wanted to, to be checked as well. And the GP almost refused me the test. I was like, why? You know, young woman, you're uni, why would you want to do that? I would taste everything else other than that. Then I was like, no, I insisted on it. Yeah, so this GP ended up, that me getting a positive test, that ended up being her first ever that she had seen and she was panicking. I went to the, to get my results. I rang this and then they said, oh, you have to come in. I went and they kept moving me towards the end and I almost felt like, oh, something is very wrong here. So she was panicking and it didn't even help the situation. So, so it was very um, almost kind of traumatic, to be honest. Yeah, and that part, it almost made me think about back in Africa where you almost feel like you are prepared. You go through the pre, if you ask for an HIV test, you have to have a pre-test counseling session as to why they assess your risk. And then when you have it afterwards, you go through the post. So you almost feel like you've got some skills to deal with the reality of it. Yeah. And the relationship didn't work. Then I moved on. Of course, I met someone. And you've got two girls mm. and their father is negative. Yeah. And like all mothers who are living with HIV in Australia who are on treatments, no no child has been born with HIV. And that was same with your yeah. situation. But I would imagine at that time you didn't know anything about when you got pregnant about having babies. I mean, it would have been, you wouldn't have known anything about the advances in with treatments and that it was quite okay to have a baby and women are having natural birth. Having been raised in Africa and having the knowledge about HIV, I feel like it was also a blessing in disguise because even back in Africa when we were there, there were two women that were having babies and they'd introduced uh, the that first drug, what's it called, that was making people very sick. Navaroprene. Exactly. So there were still women back in Africa. There wasn't such an interest from the Western. So you'd have all these non-governmental organizations that were coming, doing all this research with these mothers and trying all these drugs. So when I decided that I made this person and that's the pathway I wanted to go down. I did my research and found out what Australia did. And of course, I wasn't happy 
but um, I almost felt like I was a guinea pig. And I think that was the worst time in terms of my diagnosis because it felt really real then. Uh, suddenly they were talking about I had to be on treatment because when I was diagnosed, I was almost undetectable and I had a very high CD4 count. So they told me then that I didn't need to be on treatment. But because now I was having the kids, I had to be on it, I think, from about 20 weeks pregnant. But then, yeah, just going, navigating the system, there was all these assumptions and the the stigma, the the carelessness where people just disclose your status to the, the wrong assumption. And I felt like more like a guinea pig. My first child was born in 2011, so which was at least four years post-diagnosis. Women all around the world are breastfeeding. In fact, the World Health Organization recommends mm-hmm. breastfeeding in developing countries. And in Switzerland and the UK, women are being supported for breastfeeding. And here in Australia, we are about to release breastfeeding guidelines. Yeah. So, so we've come a long way with women living with HIV becoming mothers. So what was that like for you in those early days of, of having your children? Yeah, because formula feeding is such a it's a Western thing to do in where we come from. It's not really a thing that people do. So even having a diagnosis, now you're not breastfeeding, it even caused so much anxiety about it. I remember when I had my kids, we had to... I had to stop people from coming to visit me because the questions were endless about why I wasn't breastfeeding. Yeah. When you were in the health system with your with pregnancies, you were saying before there was this assumptions were made about how you were infected. And so was that just because the healthcare system had very little knowledge of HIV and, and pregnancy? Yes, I think so. They also reinforce some assumptions. You know, sometimes you internalize some things you grew up being told or people are saying about you. So it was kind of thinking about, you know, those racial things like being black and now there's HIV, almost like, oh, my God, that is so true that this is where HIV comes from. And then when you go into a healthcare setting and the first thing they ask you, so it's this African man that gave it to you. And like, they haven't even asked me. So it's sort of like, it, it, it makes you question a lot of things. And, and even assuming that, oh, I hope you're looking after yourself. You're not giving it out to people. And I'm like, wait a minute. I actually know a lot about HIV than you do. And I'm the one that actually initiated it best. And someone's life was saved here. So it was actually, um, yeah, quite confronting, but it's not everyone. Then there's some that it gets an interest with them. There's, there was also caring, but also I think it also re- reinforced the messages and the lack of knowledge among health staff about HIV. And so this was your journey through the healthcare system. Uh, yes, yes. Because I remember one incident, I was just, I just given birth and it was, I was tired, I was just out of sorts, and I asked for the nurse or whoever, and she came to me, she was like, oh, I said, oh, I'm, I'm pretty upset, and I don't feel really, really, really good. She was like, oh, are you upset because of the AIDS? I was like, it had nothing to do with that. So there was the emphasis on the HIV more than anything else. So she just, I told her I was upset. She was like, oh, are you upset because you've got AIDS? So was that your first experience of stigma, was becoming a new mother and through the healthcare system? Yeah, yeah. 
Then I even I even I even put um salt into wound. I was like, you can even breastfeed. She was like, what? So you see, there you go. So people are just not educated. I think they just need to be more education. From that point, had you looked to have any support from the HIV sector from organizations like Positive Women Victoria? Yeah, well, I was diagnosed in 2007. 2008, I reached out to Positive Women, actually. From when you were diagnosed to when you reached out for support, I mean, that was a year for all of us when we're diagnosed. It's such a scary time, such a time when you're alone. You don't want to tell your family. You don't want to tell your friends. You don't want to tell anyone. But that entire year going without any kind of support anyone to talk to I mean you would have been talking to your HIV healthcare team so did you talk with your family did you have your family support at that time for me I was in Melbourne but my family was back in New South Wales so when I was just here for, for uni I remember when I got the, the actual diagnosis and I I went home I just used to cry myself to sleep for almost that year I, I just didn't tell them I was I just felt like oh my god they'll be disappointed those mm. you know those I felt like I disappointed them those messages they were telling us abstain use condoms yeah. I just stopped doing that so there was also that sense that that shame and I, I just I just I just couldn't tell them so the only support I had was you know, this person I was in a relationship with and contracted from. So I think I sought support in him. You know, um, he also sought support in me because his fam- his parents are originally from another another state. So uh, he was also alone. So I think we just supported each other. I think I was grateful that for that year, we just supported each other. He had to get well. He thinks we're moving fast. He'd be on treatment and all of this stuff. So we, outside of that, I would just go on um, the website, look at to see what other women have done. Yeah. And I just, and the doctors kept telling me, oh, we'll see you like once or twice a year. So we don't need to see you. So I was like, so what, what is happening? I was just left to deal with this. I didn't even have that much contact with doctors because I was pretty well as well so yeah I struggled with it to be honest until I reached out to positive women yeah I met this nurse and she talked about oh why don't you this positive women and I just that's where it started I reached out and the, the because the treatments are so effective now that for many people it's just one tablet a day and they go to the doctor like once or twice a year to have everything checked, bloods checked, make sure viral load is still undetectable, everything's working fine with the treatments and they pick up a new prescription of pills for the for the next six mm. to 12 months, which is so different to what it used to be like. I mean, that's how effective the treatments are today. So what was the, the turning point for you to reach out to, to positive women? Was it reading stories about other women on the website? Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a lot of women there. I, I remember when I got the pamphlet, I also got a book that was written about women's stories, Seven Women's Journeys. I forgot the title of the book. So it talks about uh, blood ties. Yes, yes. So it gave me hope and uh, because I've always wanted to be a mom, they talked about, then there was there was blood ties and another one about women having kids, another book. So that nest was pretty good. Yeah. She gave me those two books. She gave me the contact numbers. I parked the contact numbers. I just read the books and I was in Australia. These women are Australian. So it gave me hope that somewhere out there, there are women that are 
going about their lives that are found a way to to live with HIV and just lead almost yeah I don't want to call them normal lives but just find a way of managing it so actually that really helped me those books and then then I just called I spoke to one nice lady and she set up a meeting with me and that was the beginning of it you know went into dinners and um and I think that's very important to any person, especially women, because sometimes there's an assumption that women don't get it in Australia. So um, that peer support is very important. Um, I know for myself, I would have like a dinner here and there because yeah. I was still trying to work out my life, trying to get like I had I think I had like two jobs and I was almost finishing uni, but I just knew that I had this group where I would go and just feel safe and talk about that part of my life, which was so hidden. Did you reach out and get support from your parents? No. No? I only did that when I found this next relationship. Um, Yeah. So before when I met this person that's when I sort of like talk, started talking to first person I shared this with were both my parents and uh, my mother was just like oh why did you go for all this time without telling us yeah that's yeah that's what that's same with me <laughs> I was like why didn't you tell me <laughs> you can't live life holding such but I could tell her face she was quite heartbroken I don't know whether it was because she felt for me that why did she not trust enough for me? I still haven't asked her up to now, like, what really was the most, the feeling you had then? And then uh, she gave me a hug. And then I think my my dad cried a little bit uh, because I think he just went back to what was happening in Africa, like, oh, I'm going to lose my daughter type thing. And then over time, the family, they understand through education and through understanding about the treatments. Yeah. The other issue here in Australia with an African migrant community and the stigma is very bad. You know, it's an issue for everyone living with HIV, but it's particularly an issue for the women from the migrant backgrounds. What is the situation there and how can we overcome that stigma? Well, it's a, it's a huge thing and I think that's one thing that I don't want to say aspire, but I think it motivated me to seek out more to positive women, even try and make a difference, sought employment, got work there, working with supporting women living with HIV. And I think Part, it's very, um, I don't want to speak for all African women or migrant women, but I know being an African woman and there's a common thread when they come here, I think getting a diagnosis, it almost shocks them. You know, you're trying to navigate being uh, somewhere where some people feel like they don't belong and then you have this thing on top of that and it, there is some some racial connotations to it. You know, the feeling like, oh, only black people have HIV and stuff like that. So I, some women internalize that the layer of, you know, of stigma within them, which may or may not be true. You know, you just land it and now it's, you feel like a confirmation of your internal stigma. And I think it's also about the culture, the external culture, the external stigma that here HIV hasn't been normalized. I think that's a huge, yeah. huge yeah. thing that you feel like it's not there. So obviously I'm so different. Where am I going to get support? Um, yeah, I think yeah. for me, it's about addressing the other structural things, like the external stigma. 
because like I said, when, you, when you're here, it's never talked about. You don't see it on the billboards. You don't see it being talked about in sex ed class. So when it happens, yeah, you're bound to feel alone. People frown, frown upon people that have it. You know, even with Australian history as well, you know, with gay men and how they viewed HIV. So there's a lot of that in, in the community. Yeah, yeah. One, it came from Africa too, or maybe gay men or it's already highly stigmatized and it's in their culture. So I think it's very really hard when you're coming even from a different culture to have it because, yeah, there's another layer to it. And then that layer, does that also include the women from these migrant communities that have come into Australia and the, a lot of their support is from within their community, their family, their church, their friends uh, within the cultural community. So if they're diagnosed with HIV and people find out about them, what will that mean for that woman? African communities are very diverse and one thing, they're very religious as well. And I remember, um, you know, churches would always say that, you know, it's dirty, it's punishment. So when you do get a diagnosis, it can actually confirm those things as well. And if your family has those beliefs, you know, it, it, it can be hard. But I think on a larger scale, people, you know, just don't have, a lot of people that come here, I'm very lucky that I came with my family. I had that support and that really helped me. Sometimes I can imagine if I was just here as a student by myself and I got a diagnosis like that, it would really, I think it would be a different story in terms of family because that plays part. Yeah, at the end of the day, they'll come around. So what can we do, do you think, to overcome that stigma? Can we sort of involve the church leaders in helping to educate the communities about HIV? and and also, and, and part of that is uh, U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmittable because of the advances in the treatment. So people with HIV who are on treatments cannot transmit the virus. Is U equal U making a difference in helping to end stigma in these multicultural communities? Unless we put it out there. Because you and I already know what you because you is, you know, we know what's happening in the sector. But people that are out there, they're not aware of that. I've got sisters that sometimes I'm even shocked by. I, I try and be that person. No, honey, you should also look after yourself. Go get a test. I'm not that person. And I, I still think it's lacking. I think, I think first that has to be present, the actual outside community, for people to just normalize it. And then also working with people from other cultures in, in, a, in a meaningful way. And it takes effort and resources to understand because HIV, when you get it, people feel like it's very intimate, you know, so you're sleeping around, you're doing this, you just no sex before marriage. So there's, and then you're in Australian culture where maybe it's the opposite of that. So that sometimes there's a clash of values and beliefs. So if there's an outside external community where everything is normalized, we talk about you because you, there's a message there. And then those elders can be like, oh, all right. I saw an advert there. Then when they're treating their family member, they can be kinder because they're informed. You were saying with when you were a teenager growing up in Southern Africa, sexual health education was a big part of your curriculum. Yeah, it was to do with HIV, actually. 
Yeah, well, here in Australia, sexual health education is not part of the curriculum. It's it's up to the school to actually include it in the curriculum. And this is when they have people living with HIV as part of the Positive Speakers Bureau go into the schools and help educate the teenagers about sexual health and HIV. But and particularly now with during COVID-19, this whole year of 2020 of year sort of 9, 10 and senior school students are getting no sexual health education at all. So, you know, we've got a, a long way to go to get that U equals U message you know, to the, the young people. And that's, I think, the, be- the best place to start because you'll have a school and you've got people from all different cultural backgrounds attending that school. And hopefully they would take that message back to their, their families and their community. And I also think that a lot of people that come here, when they come to Australia, I think there's also that assumption that there's no HIV. I even get it from some of my African friends. You know, they'll be talking about so and so and they'll be like, oh, but here we don't do that. And that sort of kind of assumption, it it just builds in with those communities. Even people that are supposed to be your elders can also have those assumptions. They're not educated. And the idea is to keep the education there and keep people aware and keep it you know, in the the forefront of their mind that this is a, a, something that can happen. Yes, ex- ex- exactly. You know, we have a lot to learn from Africa because they have not let up on that education campaign. Yeah, and you can imagine, we're just caught up to it. What about even people that are outside their families of people that have been with HIV, friends? It's such a huge burden to put on, on people living with HIV to be the people that pass on yeah, that message. Yeah. So I think there's more to be done in doing that. That'll even help other migrant different cultures, even the Australian culture here for women. They're being the, the advocates of for, for ending in ending HIV stigma. Yeah. Yep, that's true. Yeah, I actually was reminded, I was touched when uh, I've, I've got a very good doctor. So he He's always sharing with me things related to HIV in Africa because he's got an interest in that. And he shared with me a video. Young people that are now in their adolescence, they were born living with HIV, and now they are taking this, you know, they're mobilizing the community. And I was like, it's so powerful coming from people that were born with it. And it wasn't out of their choice, but they're actually leading the way to debunk the stigma. Because they are saying, we were born with it. What do you want us to do? We were born with this. There's no blame there. So they're actually, yeah, putting the messages out there. Well, it has been wonderful speaking with you today, Betsarai. Thank you so much for sharing your story on Our Stories Ending HIV Stigma. Thank you for the opportunity, Heather. I think this work is very important in if we're going to move forward and address the external stigma and just make a change. So I'm very privileged to be here and have you share my story so yeah thank you so much if you've enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted please rate and review this podcast and share it our stories is part of the women and hiv tell the story project made possible by gilead sciences through the gilead together grant program and produced by positive women victoria a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time we ended HIV stigma once and for all?
For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.